This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of Knowledge at Wharton website. We're here today with Herb Hovenkamp. He's a Wharton professor of legal studies and business ethics with a joint appointment at the Penn Law School. Herb, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And you've come here today to talk to us about a couple of papers that you recently completed on antitrust policy. That's right. And the first one talks a little bit about um, what's called what you call progressive antitrust policy. Now, progressive is a term that we hear in the news quite a bit these days, and in particular last year during the 2016 election. Can you talk about a little bit about what this has meant recently and what it's meant for antitrust policy? Yeah. Progressives in general have tried to make antitrust policy more aggressive. That is, they don't think markets work as well. And as a result, there ought to be more intervention on the part of the government against anti-competitive practices. Uh, The original progressive movement in the early 20th century had that motive, and the result was very significant expansion of the antitrust laws. And more recently, uh, the Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party, has espoused what they consider to be a progressive approach to antitrust uh, that would use the antitrust laws more aggressively, particularly against big businesses in highly concentrated industries, which are industries that have only a small number of firms. Now, you find a disconnect here between, I guess, progressive views about the role of regulation and what you would call optimal antitrust policy. And I, what are one of the things you say in the paper is that progressive ha- progressives tend to have some outsized expectations about what antitrust could actually accomplish? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, antitrust is only as good as the fact-finding powers of courts and our knowledge about economic theory. And there's a lot of situations where we just don't know as much as we need in order to make the economic world a better place by means of an antitrust decree. So I've always taken the position antitrust needs to be a little bit more conservative or a little more cautious about proceeding against practices that it doesn't understand very well. Uh, and I'm a little bit concerned about overreaching on the part of this new wave of antitrust interventionism. Now, do you feel like this is coming from, I mean, it seems like the term big business today, to some people at least, it doesn't matter what the business does or doesn't do because they're big, they are automatically bad. Is that feeding into this somehow? To a certain extent. To a certain extent, the the uh, the uh, anger of the progressive antitrust movement is pointed at very large businesses. That was also true early in the 20th century. At that time, the culprits were people like Standard Oil, Ford Motor Company, U.S. Steel. Uh, Today, it's more likely to be somebody like uh, Amazon or Google, particularly in the EU, Intel, Microsoft. Uh, But the concerns are really not all that different. A lot of people are concerned that businesses have become too big, that they wield too much political power, uh, and perhaps most importantly, that they injure smaller businesses who are unable to compete with them. Now, to find, to craft a policy that would actually maybe get at some of these goals to maybe allow small businesses to compete or just accomplish the goals they want to accomplish, what could they keep in mind when crafting what would be maybe an optimal progressive antitrust policy? Well, first of all, I don't think antitrust policy should have its as its goal keeping small businesses in the market. 
I think its goal should be to maximize the welfare of consumers. And consumers are usually best off when output is highest. High output translates into low costs, high quality, and that benefits consumers. And the fact is that sometimes it takes a pretty big business to benefit consumers. Uh, and, uh, and small businesses frequently cannot compete with that because they have, uh, they have higher costs. Frequently, they cannot produce products that are as good quality. And so when that happens, then antitrust policy has to choose sides, which is either protection of small business on one side or protection of consumers on the other. Now, that actually gets at your second paper, which talks about antitrust policies and inequality of wealth. So what are some reasons that people try to use antitrust policies to redistribute wealth? I think the main reason people would like to use antitrust policy to redistribute wealth is because Congress, or in some cases state legislatures, are not doing it by means that everybody agrees would be better. For example, the best way to redistribute wealth would be through a tax system or a welfare system. Uh, Those systems may not be particularly popular right now. Antitrust has the advantage for redistributional purposes in that it uses very, very general open-ended language that is capable of a wide variety of different interpretations. You know, it simply speaks of monopolization without really telling us what that term means, or competition without really defining that term. And so the thinking is that uh, if we can't get this from the legislature through explicit legislative action, maybe we can get it from the judges in the guise of interpreting the antitrust laws. Now, you mentioned that the goal of antitrust law should focus on consumer welfare, but there's also another school of thought that you write about in the paper that talks about general welfare. What is the difference between the two? General welfare is the total welfare of all participants in the market, producers, consumers, and third parties that might be affected. Uh, By contrast, uh, consumer welfare is concerned only with the welfare of consumers. Importantly, consumer welfare is very much easier to measure in the context of antitrust litigation than general welfare is. General welfare always requires these very complicated balancing tests between harm to consumers on the one hand and benefits to producers on the other. So in terms of measurement, consumer welfare has a huge, uh, a huge measurement advantage. Furthermore, there are almost no cases where it really makes any difference. And so one of the things I advocate is that antitrust should uh, give up on its quest for improving general welfare and instead focus solely on the welfare of consumers. That translates into preferring practices that produce higher output. uh, And higher output generally makes the economy more efficient. It benefits a wider group of people. uh, And and it's uh, more attractive distributionally because there's a fair amount of evidence that says that competitive high output markets are better for more egalitarian wealth distribution than than monopolized markets. Now, you also talk in this paper about how that approach might be applied today to what you just to what you mentioned previously, how it might be applied to the Googles of today or the Amazons. And could you talk a little bit about the example that you ta- that you put in, yeah, the, in there? Yeah, the main problem with the the uh, 
those advocating using antitrust to go after companies like Google, and that's particularly been true in the European Union Mm -hmm. in the last six months, or Amazon, uh, the Amazon merger with Whole Foods, for example, has now been completed. The Federal Trade Commission looked at it but decided not to challenge it. I believe that was the right challenge. Uh, The arguments against those large firms are based very largely on the impact that those large firms have on smaller businesses. In the case of Amazon, it's basically firms that make things and either compete with Amazon or else supply Amazon. In the case of uh, Google Search, it's based on many, many complaints for from firms that operate competing search engines and things like that. Uh, what both sets of arguments lack, however, is any serious concerns about the welfare of consumers, because very interestingly, very few of the complaints against either Google or Amazon come from consumers. Consumers, by and large, are very happy with all the free stuff they get from Google, because most of Google's business model is based on giving things away. And they're also pretty happy with Amazon's very low prices. Uh, And furthermore, in both of those cases, that success is sustainable as long, only as long as those firms keep doing it. That is, if Amazon should switch to start charging monopoly prices, it would lose most of its business right away. Same thing would almost certainly happen in the case of, of Google. So what I find very disturbing about the arguments against both Amazon and Google is the lack of any serious attention to uh, the impact on consumers. What also seems that often... It's other big businesses that are arguing about this in the guise of saying we want to protect consumers when really it might be we want to protect ourselves. Sure. I mean, the largest complainants, among the largest complainants against both Google and Amazon, and in the case of of Google, it's companies like Microsoft, which has a competing search engine, or Yelp, which has a competing specialty search engine. In the case of Amazon, one of the largest complainants has been Walmart, which is owned by uh, probably the richest family in the uh, in the United States. However, Walmart has been primarily dedicated to very traditional brick-and-mortar retail sales, and as uh, greater and greater portions of the retail economy have switched to online buying, uh, this has hurt Walmart a lot and has benefited Amazon. Uh, And so a great deal of this complaining is nothing more than kind of a call to reverse a technological revolution in favor of, uh, of firms that are committed to older ways of doing business that may have worked very well for them in the past, but are not working so well today. Which, correct me if I'm wrong, is pretty far away from what the goals of antitrust law are. Well, they're far away from what where I think they should be. I mean, the, the congressional history isn't as clean as anybody would want, want it to be. And there's quite a bit of uh, talking in the legislative history about the need to protect small business, uh, but never any viable theory, and certainly not any theory in the last 20 or 30 years, that has articulated small business protectionism at the expense of consumers as a, as a viable antitrust goal. So what you're saying is is that by using the consumer welfare consideration, you can both protect small businesses 
and protect consumers as long as whatever's going on is doing both of those things as opposed to just protecting the small business. Yeah. I mean, we're not really so much protecting small businesses, but giving them a chance to compete. Mm -hmm. It may require that they change their technologies, may require that they enter into new areas that they are uncomfortable with. For example, let me just give you one very clear example that's already happening, and that is in the in the wake of the lead up to the Whole Foods Amazon merger, increasing numbers of grocery stores have gotten into home delivery of groceries. Mm-hmm. Well, today's consumers like that, right? Consumers are moving into the cities more, particularly younger ones. They're using their own cars less. They want convenience. They want their groceries delivered. Traditional grocery stores uh, didn't do it. Certainly Walmart didn't do it. And even Walmart now is trying to compete to, a, to an extent with online shopping in the grocery business. These are fundamentally good things because they benefit consumers, but they do put pressure on small businesses who either have to make these technological or, or distributional changes or else they're going to suffer in the market. So we have time for one more question. What's next for you on this particular line of research? I think uh, I plan on doing some writing on what we call structuralism in antitrust, which is the idea that you need to pursue or condemn certain types of industries simply because of their structure and not worry so much about their anti-competitive practices. Uh, I think that idea is fundamentally wrongheaded. I think a certain structure might be a prerequisite to an anti-competitive outcome, but you still need the conduct. You still need anti-competitive conduct in order to uh, to uh, bring a firm into condemnation under the antitrust laws. So that's kind of my agenda for the for the immediate future. Herb, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. You can find all of Knowledge of Wharton's podcasts on our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find us on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.